All right, this is one of those easy reference points to find in your Bible. Turn open, please, to Revelation chapter 1. Just go to the back of your Bible and move left. It's like Genesis, find it easy. Psalms, you find it easy. Revelation, right there. Now, uh, your pages in your Bible might be a little stuck together because perhaps you've never read it. Perhaps you don't read it a lot or enough or ever. I didn't do it, I promise. But this is, uh, this is where we will begin our study in, in the book of Revelation. And this is going to be, I, I believe, a really fun, uh, but also timely study for us uh, as a church, but most importantly as disciples of Jesus. Before we get into, we'll review the and look into the first eight verses, but uh, just to get us on the same page, why in the world study this book? What does this book have to do with our here and now? What does this book have to do with a mom who's got snotty-nosed kids that are constantly complaining? What does this book have to do with a professional who's in the workforce battling spiritual warfare all the time and not understanding how things are working? How can contemplating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin will help us? That phrase is hundreds of years old as a, a, a combative thought to why do we have to look in to study all this theology? What's just going to work for us? We need something that works. Well, here's why we're going to do this study. The first thing and the most important thing is for our discipleship. This is a book of the Bible. God gave us this book and he wants us to know it. What we're going to see is that he wants us to see what he sees because what he sees translates into transforming how we see. What he sees in the unseen, we then take and see in the seen of our lives. This is a picture book, and we ought to think about it like a picture book. Too often we approach it as a puzzle book that needs to be put together. It's a picture book. And we have to, uh, they're going to give these little caveats as we walk through our study. We need to be aware of teachers who are overconfident in what they see, and what they have figured out. We also have to be aware of our own hearts when we've come around some teaching where we think, oh, I figured it out. Because here's the reality. We don't know. I stand before you sometimes very confused about what I read in the book of Revelation. We're all on the same page, right? But God wants us to go through it. God wants us to see it for our discipleship. This, this book helps us see Jesus. That's the most important thing we need. It helps us see him. It helps us no matter what, how things fit together. It helps us see Jesus so we can, again, like Isaiah 37, 31, we can, we can take root downward and bear fruit upward. This book will root us in our discipleship. This book is also to give us peace, to settle anxious hearts about world and cultural experiences. The past few years have been a tornado of cultural experiences that the word, I got so tired of the word in 2020 of unprecedented. 
It's like, I'm so tired of that word. But we really were living through things we had never done before. And we were living through everybody having opinions about everything that we've never done before. And trying to figure out the opinions, it was exhausting, wasn't it? We're still lingering in it. From natural disasters to governing authorities. You know, back in 2020, uh, my email box, my inbox was filled with people that I know and some that I don't know that were trying to get me, sending me articles, sending me YouTube videos to watch. Like, this, the world is ending. We are in Revelation. And so I, I did spend hours watching all of this stuff to be able to have a talking point with who was sending, especially for people in the church. I wanted to be able to have a talking point. But I, I, no matter what we look at in the world, our hearts, if we stare at it long enough, will become unsettled. And God wants to settle our hearts with his peace. This book is also for our worship. As we look at Jesus, we're supposed to look at Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He, he's the one that gives the faith. And as we, as we look at him, we are faith to walk out our lives. And there's worship all over the place in Revelation. It's all over the place. So this is for our worship. It's also for our mission. The result of seeing Jesus in Revelation is not preoccupation with coming events or timing of them. It's connecting to his heart to bring tongues and nations and tribes to his presence, which then gives us courage to fulfill our commission. So we, we have a mission before us. We know what's going to happen, and we know what God desires for us. And after our study... I hope and I pray that we, we are more aware of the lost around us who need redemption. That's why we study this book, for our discipleship, for our peace, for our worship and our mission. We're given the book of Revelation as a gift of God's grace. Uh, so we are equipped to face the realities of the age that we're living out for the witness of Jesus Christ. We are given unique, sometimes confusing visions we are given unique visions into unseen cosmic realities of jesus kingly reign to mature us and supply faith to walk in our present seen realities he wants to give us an unseen reality that shows up in our seen reality because it has bearing daryl johnson uh, very very helpful commentary discipleship on the edge i recommend this if you want to use it to follow along I read this last year in preparation for this study. Uh, just a very fantastic commentary. He says this in his introduction in Discipleship on the Edge. Revelation is not a crystal ball revealing us esoteric secrets that enable one to escape the harsh realities of life on earth. Let me pause for a second. Sadly, a lot of the people who have figured out Revelation have their lives in shambles. Because it, when it becomes a preoccupation, we really lose sight of Jesus. In the effort to try to figure out Jesus, we lose sight of him. So back to the quote. We don't want to escape the harsh realities of, of life on earth. But this is given as a down-to-earth manual on how to be a disciple of Jesus facing the harsh realities of life on earth. In particular, how to do this the way Jesus did and does. Very helpful. 
So to synthesize our quest here, Revelation gives us windows into the unseen realities of Jesus' reign, causing us to look at our present realities in faith, even by faith. I try to figure out which preposition to use there. My wife's always, she doesn't know why I geek out about prepositions, but within the Greek language, prepositions mean a lot. They mean a lot, a lot. So they mean a lot to me. Let's read God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who, are pier- who pierced him. And all tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We ask, God, that you would bless the preaching of your word. We can break up this, this passage into three components. And the first is verses 1 through 3, where we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, listen, please. There's no S on the end of the revelation word. This is not the book of Revelations. It's a pet peeve around my house. And my children love to tease me by saying Revelations. It's one revelation about who? Jesus. A lot of images, a lot of pictures, one revelation. We have to keep that in mind. This is about Jesus, the Messiah. The word revelation is, comes from the Greek word apocalypse, the, well, the Greek word for apocalypse, and I'm, I don't usually go into the language thing, but listen. Our, our culture has taken the word apocalypse and rewritten it to mean disaster. And so that's why every, every time there's a natural disaster, we need more apocalyptic language, catastrophic language to get people's attention, to pay attention. Like, this is serious. That's the wrong use of the word. Originally, when John wrote it, it's, this is the apocalypse of John. Revelation. Unveiling. Here's what it is. And he, said, he gave, he receives this from Jesus himself. Look, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Who's the him? Jesus. God the Father gives God the Son a revelation of things that will take place. And then Jesus sends an angel to the apostle John and says, here, you need to see these. You need to write them down. God wants us to know what he sees. It's reminded me of a story in 2 Kings chapter 6 when... 
Elisha is the prophet, the, the sort of the prominent prophet of Israel. Uh, he, the king of Syria is coming again. He's learning that Elijah is a prophet and whatever he prophesies about God will do comes about. So Syria, king of Syria says, look, we've got to take this guy out. So he sends all of his forces to surround Dothan, which is the city that Elisha lived in. And so he's surrounding Dothan. The servant wakes up one, uh, Elisha's servant wakes up one morning and sees the whole city surrounded and realizes we're dead. What's going to happen? What do we do? And Elisha says, don't worry. There are more that are with us than are with them. Servant, I must have been looking at him crazy because then Elisha prays and asks God, God, will you open his eyes to see? And when the servant's eyes were open, he saw that on the mountains, filled with horses and chariots of fire. See, Elisha knew something about the unseen reality to, that influenced his peace in the situation. Revelation just acts exactly like that. We're the ones freaking out. We're the servants. What? God, uh, what do we do? It's all right. More, more with us than are with them. And so our prayer is, God, open my eyes to see. Open our eyes to see this revelation. And look, this book is the greatest spoiler alert ever. We know the end of the story. You know what it is? Jesus wins. He wins. So, no matter what you're facing, no matter what fear is trying to creep in your life, no matter what offense the, the devil himself wants you to hold on to so root of bitterness grows up in your heart, no matter what it is, Jesus wins. And it settles us. This is a revelation Oh, it also helps us understand that John's audience didn't understand everything he said either. So we're in good company. We have this because the Holy Spirit is using it to show us, but really to see Jesus. But he wants us to be confident in the end of the story so we have courage to keep going. This revelation is given to the Apostle John somewhere probably between uh, A.D. 92 and 96, when he's an old man, in his, probably around his mid-80s. While exiled from Asia, which is present-day Western Turkey. We'll explore the reasons for that next week in verse 9. He says he's on the, exiled on the island of Patmos. Now look, another phrase to draw out. He bore witness to John, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, this is crucial for our uh, realization when reading and studying this book. John will repeat this phrase uh, at each of the major sections, I saw. He repeats that in the major sections. And, and we, can, we can think of it like this, that maybe John's in a hallway. And in this hallway, there are windows. And there's five specific windows. And he comes to the first one that the angel brings him. And it's as if the angel just takes the curtain and moves it aside. And John's peering through the window. And he's trying to describe what he's seeing. And then he goes back to the next one in the the. The, the angel opens the next one in that next section. He says, then I saw. So he's peering into this window again. And then for five windows, he's looking through. And John writes those windows down for us. Here's kind of how we see this. It's, it's five windows to see Jesus. That's trying to, there, there are a lot of ways to figure out um, the structure of this book. But I think this is the most 
helpful for us. First thing is this, in chapters 1 through 3, we see Jesus in his church. His presence is with his people as they combat the trial of persecution and as they combat the trial of spiritual apathy. You know, sometimes persecution makes us spiritually apathetic. We're tired of fighting. Tired of fighting. In verse, I'm sorry, in chapters 4 through 11, we have Jesus on his throne. He is the lamb on the throne, the worthy one to open the seals. In the third window, chapters 12 to 14, Jesus within spiritual conflict. This is the, the most, uh, this is where a lot of the press goes to hear in Revelation 12 through 14, because this is the beast and the woman riding the beast and all that. Listen, the beast rages, but the king reigns. Jesus wins. In the fourth window, we see chapters 15 through 18, Jesus as the judge. Look, and there's some harsh realities that no one escapes his judgment. No one escapes his judgment. It will come swiftly and it will be complete. But as believers, church, listen, it's sobering for us. And it, it should produce an appropriate grief in our hearts that unbelievers are facing that reality of God's judgment, where we, by our faith in Christ, are repenting of our sins and trusting Christ for salvation. Nothing of our own works. We're completely depending upon Jesus. We have been delivered from that judgment. Jesus took that judgment on the cross. And now we are freed from that judgment to experience the presence of God as priests, a kingdom. And God put that together. But look, I, 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 my concern is that too often... We find ourselves wishing God's judgment upon unbelievers rather than appropriately grieved over the facing judgment. And we, we nebulize it. Um, America's got what's coming to it. We have to be careful. Because unbelievers hearing that, it's not compassionate. That's not a way that says, oh, but there's hope. We have to be careful. But Jesus is the judge and accounting Will, will come, is coming. And then the final ver uh, verses, eh, chapters. The final chapters of the book, 19 to 22. This is glorious. Jesus in victory. We have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth. The most exciting of which is this. Revelation 22, 4. And they will see his face. We get to see Jesus. We get to see him. That's what bolsters us. That's what gives us the courage to con continue on. But we, we also recognize in verse 3, there's blessing in this book. There's blessing promised in this study. Those who hear, those who read aloud, who hear, who keep. This book gives us hope in our journey. And it's, it says keeping, it's reading aloud, hearing and keeping the prophecy. Quick point, how do we, how do we keep a prophecy? Prophecy typically, for the most part, means bringing forth. Well, even if it's future events that are prophesied, it's a bringing forth of what God's doing. So maybe we say all the time, prophecy is about bringing forth what God has and will do. This prophecy is a declaration of Jesus given to his disciples to read, to hear, and keep. So what do we do? We keep the declaration of Jesus through our discipleship. We keep him exalted. We keep him preeminent. We live out the life that he is in us. 
He's there. Well, the king coming on the clouds is already here. And we live it out. So here's a, a guiding principle for us. I have a few of these to help us to be reminded of. A guiding principle here. Prophecy is about declaration, not decoding. We are tempted to get into the, the decoding, this esoteric secret thing. But then we have time. Time is near. In verse 1, things that will soon take place. What do we do with timing? What do we do with what's near, soon? How do we view this? There are four, uh, basically four ways to view timing in the book of Revelation. The first would be, and this is some heady stuff, so track with me. The first is a preterist view. If you ever heard that term or read it and didn't know how to pronounce it, there you go. Preterist. A preterist view sees that all of the events of Revelation happened before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So in a preterist understanding, all of Revelation's already happened. Then there's a futurist view. A futurist is nearly all of Revelation is going to happen right before a final conflict. There's another view that's a historicist, which means that the events in Revelation happen chronologically between the two advents of Jesus. Jesus' birth on the earth and then his coming on the white horse. Everything happens sequentially in an ordered fashion. And then the fourth would be an idealist view, which sees that events are symbolic and they represent principles occurring throughout the church age. And they can be cyclical. They can repeat patterns. Now, all these approaches have strengths, have weaknesses, there are guys that I, through the years, have quoted who, I, who just know the Lord and see Jesus all over the scriptures like we do, and they all share different opinions in this. So, look, not everybody agrees. We agree that Jesus wins. We don't necessarily understand or, un, or know how it all plays out. And that's okay when I was in seminary, one of my professors said, well, I personally believe in the pan theory. I'm like, what? It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> it's like, you know what? I think that's true. But I think the weakest view would be the historicist view because we see that things don't happen chronologically in Revelation. Because window three, about the beast and the woman riding the beast and Jesus... The the dragon trying to kill the baby of the woman, all that stuff. That happens first. That happens before Windows 1 and 2. John sees something that in the eternal realm is not guarded so strictly by time. So he's seeing something after the fact, but he understands, oh, that's about Jesus being born. But there's probably a combination of these things. So uh, maybe my encouragement is to keep an open mind about because I've gone down the road through the years of being strict in some things. Like, the preterists make a really compelling argument how everything happened already. And the futurists make a very compelling argument. And the idealists, they make a very compelling argument. I can read one of those and think, that's it. Got it. Only to read another one and go, now that's it. I don't know what's going on. 
That's the way the Lord humbles us. But here, guiding principle, again. Revelation was given theologically, not chronologically. Uh, chapters 12 to 14, that's the theological center of the book. That's the crux. Everything building to that and then going from it. It, it looks on both sides. And we should recognize, though, too, to be, to be clear with this, the time is near, soon take place. There's an urgency about things taking place that, that's consistent with Jesus' parables about being alert for his coming. This is because faith is required to face the harsh realities of life on earth. The blessing that comes from reading this and studying this is not from picking the right approach. The blessing occurs by keeping the declaration, Jesus is king and he wins. He is cosmically ruling and reigning over everything. And that settles us. In verse 4, in the first part of verse 5, I think we, we also see, we, in the first few verses, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we have the witness of Jesus Christ being described. Jesus, John, to the, uh, John first, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and was, is to come. And from the seven spirits of those. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. What is Jesus witnessing? The first thing is that he is a witness of God's presence. He comes from the throne where there are seven spirits. What in the world does that mean? Seven spirits? I thought God was three. He's seven now? How do we look at that? Well, glad you asked. Let's talk about numbers in the book of Revelation. Should they be taken literally or figuratively? In our Western thought, we love when things, when formulas work out. And we have all these formulas that we put together. But we love the most part, the equal sign, and what comes afterwards. Because we love concluding. This is what it equals. In Eastern thought, especially when John was writing this, that's not the main concern. That they, they, didn't want, they didn't really care what was after the equal sign. They actually understood all the components in their depth and recognized, oh, well, the end is taken care of because of all these things. So when John writes this, he said, look, the end is taken care of. We don't know what's on the, other equal, on the other side of that equal sign, but we are so convinced of what God is doing that, of course, he's going to equal out to what it's supposed to be. You see the difference? But we, that unsettles us because we're American and we love answers. I want an answer. Give me an answer now that I can just root myself in. No, he's saying root yourself in the character that's being described. The number seven within Scripture, represents completeness. It doesn't necessarily represent one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It just represents God. Seven spirits of God. God. Completely God. So here's a guiding principle. The quality of a number matters more than the quantity of the number. I don't know when some things are taken literally and which should be looked at figuratively. I don't know. But when we look at how John possibly was thinking toward this, then we recognize, all right, the quality of the number is more important than the quantity of the number. So Jesus is the faithful witness of God's presence, but he's the faithful witness. Jesus saw these things first. He's obeyed the Father again. Remember, he was on the earth. He said, what I see my Father doing, I'm doing. I only do what I see my father doing. He's seen this and he's obeying the father again by revealing it to us. He has shown it for us. 
so we then can be further witnesses, just like John was to the things that he saw, that we can be witnesses also. Remember the promise that Jesus gave his disciples in Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Think of that as concentric circles expanding outward. Ends of the earth. We're to be his, disciples, his witnesses. His disciples are to be his witnesses, but they follow, we follow the witness that Jesus is. Jesus is also the witness of resurrection life. Look, he is the firstborn of the dead. Now, you should be remembering Colossians chapter 1. But what does firstborn from the dead mean? He defeated death. So he is the witness of resurrection life. Colossians 1 verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is also the witness of God's sovereignty because why? He's the ruler of kings on earth. Think of Daniel chapter 7 where uh, I believe Daniel was seeing in that moment Jesus' ascension into heaven and being crowned with all authority and all dominion to rule the earth forever. What a cool thing to see. Uh, Daniel was able to look into a window during that time too. Look, as the ruler of kings on earth, Everything is working according to God's plan. Everything. Even when we think that could not be God. Church, everything is working according to his plan. And he doesn't need our opinion about how he's doing. We love to throw in our opinion. Well, God, if you just... It's like, like we're trying to add some spice to his, what he's prepared. No, no, no. Get your spices away. God's got it. Ephesians 1 9 and 10, remind us of this. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Yes, it's mysterious. But look, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's, that's apocalyptic language. That's re revelation language. That's unveiling language about what God is doing through Christ. Then in the second half of verse 5 through verse 8, we see now worship. We have a revelation. We have Jesus' witness. Now we have worship of the risen Savior. And from Jesus Christ, or to him, the next paragraph, to him. It's, this, is, this is worship language in the scriptures. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by the blood, by his blood, and made us a kingdom. So look, there's praise for what God has done. He has set his love on us and he has freed us from our sin by his blood. The most important thing to take away from Revelation is not to figure it out. It's to remember Jesus gave us redemption. He saved us and he brought us into his kingdom. And he says, here, be with me forever. And you can just have the mindset that one day you're going to be with me forever. That settles us, huh? He's made us a kingdom, a kingdom of priests. Remember the role of priests in the Old Testament were to minister within God's presence. I'm reading through a book right now that's exceptional by Ed Welch called uh, something about created to draw near. I'm forgetting the title because it's just coming to my mind right now. But he tracks through how God wanted us to be priests all the way from the Garden of Eden. 
And even what is represented in the tabernacle and temple can be seen in how God configured the garden. So it was just, he wants us in his presence. He wants us in his presence forever. So we are priests. Nobody is closer to the Lord than anybody else. We experience him in different measures. But nobody's closer to him. Isn't that wonderful? Nobody's, nobody's closer to Jesus than you are. He's not closer to anybody else than he is to you. So we praise God for what he's done. And look, this, uh, I love the fact that these themes, God's love, our freedom from sin, and our, our ministering in his presence, these are themes that come up in our worship songs all the time, and that's on purpose. So we are, we are just well led in that. But we praise God for what he has done. We praise God for what he will do. To him be the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced, pierced him and all tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. So we're praising God for what he do, what he will do. Here's the promise. Jesus is coming. Not will come. He is coming. So the revelation that happens of Jesus, where does that happen? It happens through our witness, through our worship. We witness to him. We, ha- we keep the declaration of his cosmic rule and reign. And we live out our lives as his disciples. And people see a shining light in the midst of their darkness. And God brings them to his presence. That's what he wants us to do. He is coming. Every day is the declaration of his coming. And it's seen in his church, especially when Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. So grateful. Aaron bragged on our, bragged to God, about God, about our love for one another. It's beautiful. The unseen God, we praise God for what he will do. The unseen God will be seen. Every eye will see him. Now for believers... That's a beautiful concept. For unbelievers, it's terrifying. Because accounting will come. All tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So while we have this joy in our hearts to see Jesus, those who do not know him will understand that time is up. And they're done. And they, they then face the God of the universe and his wrath toward their sin. Got to tell people about Jesus. Got to tell them. We got to tell them so they can escape what we've escaped too. Praise for what God has done. Praise for what God will do and then praise for who God is in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says Jesus, says the Lord God. Jesus is saying that who was, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this, this takes into account this what, who was and is and is to come. Kind of sounds like maybe what Moses heard at the burning bush. Who should I say sent me? What's your name? I am who I am. Exodus 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. He just is. And Jesus gives the Alpha Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He says, I'm the first, I'm the last. I got it all covered. I'm working my plan. And it's a glorious plan. 
what we'll see as we journey through this book is that John's imagination was very informed by his Old Testament knowledge. Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. I didn't approach those books in years. When we preached through Daniel and then preached through Zechariah, I didn't realize what God was setting up. But when the, the comic cup commentaries I've used in preparation have said, hey, it's a good idea to study those books first. I was like, well, I didn't get Ezekiel. But got two of the three, pretty cool. We're set up for this. God, God made it uh, plain for us. So what do we do, church? I think today, I hope you feel courage. Courage to pursue Jesus with everything you are. Because he wants to be revealed to us. He wants to be seen through us. He is what we need. He's what we need. He is the answer. Reminder of the guiding principles. Pictures, not puzzles. Declaration, not decoding. Theology, not chronology. Quality, not quantity. Because when we see Jesus... We don't care about the details anymore. Just see him. You know, you might have a list in your head about all the things you're going to ask God about when you get to heaven. It's like, I'm reckoning for this, God. I think at that point, (laughs) I'm not going to care anymore because I'll see his face. And we'll worship him and take our crowns off. Throw them at his feet. And he'll pick up the crown and put it back on our heads. He'll take it and throw it down on his feet. And he'll take it and put it back. And like a child, just say again, 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 again. To see with everything we are. That's what he wants for us, church. Lord, we want to see you. We want to see you. We want to see you. Holiness and your majesty and all your glory and your dominion. God, I pray that the little things that we are scared about in our lives, the things that we are trying to micromanage in our lives, that right now would just fly off of us in the light of your glory and your grace and the desire that you want us to know you've got us. You're working your plan, and Jesus wins reigns over our hearts. Amen. Well, we're just going to sing Revelation song again. So if you want to stand or even if you want to sit and contemplate on what the word that we just received and the images that are going through our mind. You know, God gave us an imagination to visualize for a reason. And I think that this could be a really powerful moment to just visualize the things that we're singing about and also that we heard. So God, thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you for this book that can settle our hearts. I love that um, that picture just to think that because for me it has always brought me anxiety (laughs) but to think that it's supposed to settle our hearts so God settle our hearts this morning